Hello, welcome to another episode of the Menswear Style Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Brooker. Today, I am talking to the founder of Anatomy, Brendan Murdoch. Anatomy is a natural health and wellness brand and community built on the principle that nutritional and emotional balance is the pathway to a fulfilled life. They specialize in health, retail, nutrition, wellness, aromatherapy, fitness, food supplements, and vitamins. And you can find more information over at the website anatomy.co. But here to describe the brand in his own words is founder Brendan Murdoch. So my name is Brendan Murdoch. I am an Irishman, uh, entrepreneur, I guess. And Anatomy is a, a brand that supports your well-being. It's an apothecary and we deal in rare, unusual botanical extracts and essential oils. And we pull those wonderful ingredients into essential oil blends, health supplements, um, organic skincare to support your well-being. Interesting. So I first got wind of you, if that's the right way of saying it, Brendan, when I tried some London Murdoch products. And uh, I can tell you they were some of the best products I, I tried. Uh, actually, a, a friend gave them to me. <laughs> and I've been, a, oh, Riley. I've been a regular patron since. But, uh, so, but what is your background before that and coming into this? So my background, I did a finance degree and then did a few law postgrads. Um, and then after working a little bit in a law firm, decided it wasn't quite for me. And I was at the time quite interested in restaurants and food. And London's dining scene was really opening up around 2002. And I opened a wine-focused restaurant on Hoxton Square, which was called Crew. And it was a large warehouse with sharing platters and a big wood fired oven. And we specialized in Mediterranean relaxed dining along with um, organic, well-chosen wines. Mm. And at that time, Shoreditch or Hoxton was the kind of birthplace of fads and fashion. And it was a real calling card across London. So it was great to showcase a restaurant. Um, and at the same time, it was a steep learning curve. I'd never run a restaurant or basically worked in one, but it was a 110-seater and quite quickly learned about food, wines, ingredients, how things work together, um, creating a brand, the order of service and the precision that a restaurant needs to work well. Um, and... Uh, and restaurants are exhausting. And after about three years, I was like, this is hard to replicate and <laughs> changing chefs and all the dynamics and, you know, shortage is a real nightlife place. So it was quite hard to keep chefs in line and it was quite demanding. Everything was down to the creative ability of an individual. And I thought, well, it would be great to be able to bottle some of this in, and not to have every evening starting from scratch. Mm. Um, and... This is a long story, but then basically looking at men's grooming and there was this idea of the metrosexual man. And I quite like rediscovering things and replatforming them. And I thought, well, there's a way of replatforming and rediscovering um, and redefining the barbershop. And across the road from Crew in Hoxton was a little corner um, shop. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice to open up a barbershop? And that was where Murdoch was born around, I can't remember, 2006 seven maybe or oh, six wow. and um that environment you know when we opened murdoch it had two barbers chairs and we were selling other people's great products 
Mm. Um, and it was a lot of old brands like D.R. Harris and San Maria Novella and some modern ones too, like Manlon Goetz and um, Aqua de Parma. And I kind of had it in my mind that we would use the barber's chair to educate men about grooming. And through the trust of their barber, they would discover what products would best suit them. And we were doing this, as I mentioned, with third-party um, brands. And then um, quite quickly, it was my intention to create uh, Murdoch London products. And so we had learned so much about the great products of the world, and some of them weren't so great. Um, <laughs> and we were able to then start developing the Murdoch products. And so we started with fragrance and shaving, and that was the anchor point to that brand. Um, and I suppose the marriage of these two things, creating skincare products, understanding ingredients in a restaurant, weirdly are interconnected and led me to anatomy because we are now specializing in ingestible supplement formulations, tea formulations, then essential oils, which are scented, worn externally on the body. So we're dealing in the world of ingredients, but we're also dealing in the world of skincare and looking after men and women and and supporting their well-being. Nice, interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I've worked in a restaurant uh, stroke bar as well uh, in my 20s and it is a very intense atmosphere I think for people that might have just had a glimpse of it on TV with like the Hell's Kitchens and the reality shows they can probably just get a slice of it but if you're working in a pub or in a restaurant it's not a job it's a it's a way of life I mean you're up at the crack you might be doing the lines behind <laughs> behind the bar which you know you have to get up at like four in the morning to kind of flush them through before it all starts and then the intensity that you get in a kitchen, it does seem like if if uh, if anybody's out there like looking to take on or be an entrepreneur, like opening a restaurant, you've, it's like a baptism of fire, I guess. Did you feel that at the time when you were doing that? Uh, I didn't. I mean, you're 26 and I had managed to buy an apartment in London with a very small deposit in Greenwich. That's when we when 26 year olds could buy apartments that doesn't happen anymore really um and i was able to make a profit and then take that into the restaurant so i kind of was quite bullish i kind of learned a little bit about you know you're visualizing the outcome you're kind of you have to have quite a clear idea what environment you're trying to create Mm. where you're going what it visually feels like and i think if you stick to that trajectory sometimes the model and the challenges at the early part you can overcome because you're trying to get to the end game but yes it is exhausting i mean your body takes a lot of battering you're moving around quickly um and chefs you know a great service you can kick out 200 250 meals um it requires a lot of discipline um and you really have to engage and talk to the customer um so it's but at 26, you're not really exhausted because then you, you still went out afterwards. And, and, yeah. You know, shorted those pockets of nightlife. <laughs> but then there was a point where that just was not sustainable. And the chefs, where I would know to stop, and this was my business, um, I think when we were on to our fourth chef, two of them, one was a, had drug issues, one had a drinking issue, which is really quite common mm. in, the, in the world of um, restaurants. Um, and then you try to apply rules of HR and discipline and verbal warnings. And, and in the end, you're dealing with talent. And, and sometimes talent cannot have the straightforward HR process. So we did find ourselves 
with chefs that weren't as talented um but followed the hr process and were a little uh. bit boring um and um it was it was a bit of a baptism in the fire but but you know we won awards and we did well but part of the trick in london with the overhead is keeping fresh keeping it innovative yeah opening another restaurant you just can't stop at one and i suppose i wasn't a chef so when things did go wrong I couldn't stand in the kitchen and take over. Um mm. I couldn't deliver my vision and I suppose that's what delivers longevity in the restaurant industry often is chef owner businesses. Not in yeah. every case like at Corbin and King or Ivy but um but there is there is a lot of challenges around that. Yeah, because I guess you have to be the master of your own destiny and if you're delegating a lot of that responsibility to a good chef that can just stay sober for, throughout most of the night then yeah you're laying a lot on the line I mean I remember I remember working like I say in that restaurant and the chefs would be nice as pie during the day when they're off the shift and then as soon as you get in there and the, the stoves are on I mean it's like a flick that gets switches there's no time for pleasantries there's no time for back and forth or banter it is military and it's ruthless and then and if you're kind of young or sensitive uh you, you can get stripped down pretty easy but um, yeah i remember having no just one anecdote was you know we had one great chef he used to work at a really fantastic restaurant morrow and um he cried when i made him make (laughs) make chips and he was like i'm not making chips and we would be pleading with him i don't care what way the fried potato comes but the customer on a friday is really interested in in some version of a fried potato and um (laughs) and he refused to do it he just cried and we would have to hold his hand and persuade him that it wasn't a slight in him the chef but you know what that industry has modernized and changed i don't think it's as hedonistic as it was in the early 2000s i think right. a lot of the chefs now are not going out at one in the morning they're quite focused and it's, it's, it's a different environment um for a large part of that industry but you touched on quite a, a keen thing earlier when you when you mentioned about trajectory and environment and placing yourself within an environment that you'd actually want to be in and sustain in so you kind of i'm guessing the that it was a lateral move to then go into well-being now that you're that you've launched anatomy in fact how long has anatomy been going oh just over three years um, mm. and yes it's a little bit of a lateral move but i was interested in you know different things i was interested in chemists why in the uk are chemists so awful and um, you know boots is a great place to go but it's not exactly a pleasurable um, shopping experience True. and when you're in um, florence or rome or milan and, and other european cities switzerland they're beautiful pharmacies and they're places of discovery and there's a different tradition in those um, european cities of the handing down of recipes and formulations from generations. Whereas here in the UK, it's often I'm sick. What drug can I get to stop feeling sick? Whereas in Europe, it's about how do I make myself more at ease? And it's a little bit more preventative in terms of health and well-being. So I also had learned about really wonderful brands like Santa Maria de Bella is a very famous apothecary in Italy, and I sold it in Murdoch. So I would observe those brands and understand what underpinned them and what made them so covetable after hundreds of years. Um, and so I did see an opportunity to modernize what we might think of a, of a London apothecary or a global apothecary. 
and you know apothecaries dealing in ingredients and formulations and so that was that migration from a the idea of a chemist and moving into uh, a, a brand that um, specializes in formulations that support your well-being but not necessarily a chemist yeah do you have to do then like do you have to be a, a kind of connoisseur of all of these different ingredients you have to put all the research in i mean like you have dermatologists that dedicate an entire career well at murdoch i learned about perfumery so we created it mm-hmm. in my time at, at murdoch's peak there and it's still doing well but it's straight the current owners have changed it and, and made it a little bit more mainstream but we did have nine fragrances that drove a lot of the storytelling of the brand and and retail sales. I think perfume was 40% of our retail sales. And um, because men, in, like anyone, discover scent, it represents different facets of men or gentlemen and um, different taste palettes. So the breadth of scent um, is quite interesting. And so I did look at aromatherapy and this booming growth, particularly in North America, of aromatherapy um, products. Um, and formulas, but those formulations don't often smell amazing, um, and aromatherapists don't necessarily look at the structure of scent with top, middle, and base note. And there is a progression of aromatherapy called aromacology, which is that blend of perfumery, looking at the structure of scent, but looking at the ingredients and how they perform. And I suppose historically, in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, before the perfume revolution, people were using um, extracts and essential oils to support their well-being. And then they were naturally scented because something smells beautiful because it's grown properly in a really great environment or landscape or altitude. So um, I was educated in perfumery to some degree, but very much a novice. Mm. And then I did learn about skincare through product development. I learned about other aspects and when I didn't know something I went to experts to find out so we brought in some sports scientists from Loughborough University initially I brought in um, nutritionists uh, dietitians and I spoke around the industry to understand how I should shape and inform the brand and and actually brands are a work in progress what you start out with isn't often what you end up with so you have to listen to the customer and navigate it I mean when I opened anatomy initially we had um, Lux sports gear and rowing machines and so, and I thought I was going to create this kind of palace of well-being right. um, and then I quickly realized no Brendan that's too broad a story and um, and you refine and refocus and refocus and get it right and that's what part of the journey is of creating a brand you have to react to what the customer is saying and really listen and go back to, well, why did I create this and what was my intention? Because sometimes you can veer off course and go, how did I get here? I need, yeah. to, I need to go back onto the main road. And, and who is your customer, would you say? I think our customer at core is a youth-seeking cosmopolitan urbanite. You know, they're, they're generally 35 upwards. A lot of them are in their late 40s, 50s, quite conscious of their well-being. Um, sleep is a big sales driver and a big focus for the brand. We have four different sleep oils. So who would have known just before developing the brand and we launch into a pandemic, does 
sleep becomes such a priority in a lot of people's minds and stressing about sleep and worrying why they can't sleep. So that is a big anchor for the brand. And then people are looking to put themselves at ease, less stressed, more mindful. You know, they're more aware of their physical well-being. Um, And I think we touched about the kind of hedonistic aspect of the 2000s well now people are waking up and doing mindful practice and they're yeah they're up early doing yoga and they're not necessarily drinking at the level that um some of us may have done years ago uh-huh. um so there's a really this urban um and it's not just the urban customer but there is a customer base that's very aware about how they want to feel and even those that are a little bit ratty and and um having fun they still want to come back to the center and be able to sleep and to be happy. Um, and ultimately, maybe anatomy can support one's happiness. And I think you touched on a good thing there about how times have changed from our, uh, our wonderful streaks of hedonism that you and I might have shared in our 20s. I remember like working in the most dingiest of IT offices where there wouldn't be so much as an aloe plant on a desk. You know, there was, I don't even think I had a window in my office for about three years. And now whenever I go out to other people's offices, because I'm a, I'm a 3D property scanner, so I've had the opportunity to scan WeWork buildings and all this and that. And you have like bean bags by the windows, you've got table tennis tops and stuff like that. I mean, it's almost like you can come and work if you want, but mainly we're just here to play. So it's like the complete opposite of uh, what I was grown up, grown up and, and used to. But it's so it's a it's a well being uh, brand, and maybe you can just help us out with what is a good well being regime. Maybe something that you adhere to. Um, sorry, I was just interrupted there. Excuse me. Uh, a routine. So, I mean, I think uh, I talked about sleep and. A lot of people have trainers or coaches or different ways of structuring their life. And it's quite, it's quite surprising listening to people how they cannot sleep. And I think what I've been learning is, and particularly I'm 46, um, not eating as much and as late in the night. I mean, yes, on a Friday night, it's great to go to the theater and eat at 10 o'clock, but, mm. but actually that really interferes with sleep. So I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't put yourself under so much pressure that seven nights a week, you have to have perfection, but, um, creating a calm environment, some steps of no TV. I don't longer have a TV in my room. I try to charge a phone away from the bed. Um, and there's simple steps of using anatomy products or using someone else's um, formulations to help one get to sleep. Simple steps of having a bath a couple of nights a week um, to get the body to relax and de-stress. And then waking up for me is an important routine where I get up at 6.15, 6.30. I probably have coffee for 45 minutes. And then I go to the gym. Um, and not everyone, you know, can. Um, I don't have children, so I don't have the demands of my life that maybe some other people have. But for me, that's structure that works. And going to the gym in the morning, although I'm not a gym bunny, it does make me more productive. Mm-hmm. Um, and allotting that time um, instead of just rushing out the door, half eaten breakfast, it's I have a little bit more structure, which works for me. 
Yeah, I like the idea of no TV in the bedroom. I've had TV in the bedroom for the last three years. and I've just moved home and I thought, I'm not going to have the TV in the bedroom. So I phoned up Sky and I said, I don't want to have the multi-screen anymore. Can you just take it off the bill? And they said that I'm tied in for another year with multi-screen. So even though, so that, that kind of like a yin and yang, I, I'm, I'm no longer got the TV in the bedroom, which is now helping me sleep a bit more. But I have the anxiety that I know I'm paying for it, even though I don't have it in. So uh, it's hard to get that work-life balance sometimes well i think uh at least on demand tv is good now we no longer need to channel hop we can decide when and what we're going to watch it's just saying i'm not going to watch the next episode i'm going to press i'm going to turn it off which is the challenge sometimes i find myself in a daze where i'm thinking i must get through call my agent just one more episode and and that really does mess with your sleep (laughs) oh yeah I, i find it really funny when people brag about binge watching box sets, I do. It's like when I see someone on Instagram going, wow, just chugged through another 10 episodes of Drive to Survive or whatever it might be. I'm like, that's not something that you should be advertising. That is pretty destructive behavior in my book. But hey, uh, yeah, I did. I did worse in my 20s. Um, <laughs> Brendan, where can uh, where can people find you? Do you are you? The, the man and the face behind uh, the social media and anatomy? Well, I mean, we have a small team now and they're working, to, we're evolving the brand. But yes, we have three shops in London in um, Marylebone on Chiltern Street. Uh, we have a pop-up semi-permanent shop in Shoreditch, which we're trying to make a permanent home, which is a really great neighbourhood to be in. And then we're in another neighbourhood, uh, Belgravia, which is just on a street called Motcombe Street, which is mm. behind High Park Corner. And then you can discover us in Liberty. And we're opening our first shop inside Selfridges on ground floor um, next to kind of Aesop and Barbara Stern. So we are growing our little tentacles around London. And then we now wholesale on platforms like Cult Beauty, Interamerica, Saks, into Hong Kong at Lane Crawford. So we're positioning the brand um, as an international brand. And um, and also we have a really fabulous um, amenity collection in hotels. So when you check into Claridge's and the Barclay and the Connacht hotels, all anatomy products are in the bathrooms and you will shower and bathe with anatomy. And then when you go to bed um, and you come into your room at 11 o'clock at night, you'll find a little anatomy sleep oil on the pillow to help you sleep just that little bit better. So you, you only find us in the finest places. Nice. Uh, where are the products made? Right now, I should have asked you. Um, well, we source ingredients from all over the world, but predominantly here in London and in the UK. So our essential oils are blended in Hampshire and our supplementation formulations are actually, sorry, I correct myself, are actually all made in America. Um, we have American um, supplementation development is more advanced than the UK. And we have really great formulas that we then import and there are our own formulas. And also in order to um, export, um, it, the FDA is, uh, which is the American standard yeah. is held in higher regard than the European standard. And, and then things like skincare and soaps are made here and we're making a little bit in Italy as well. Um, so there is a global supply chain, I guess. But you can still say stuff's made in the UK. So when you're down in Selfridges next and you're, you're thinking about the competitors' brands, I think we should be sticking with anatomy. I'm going with you, Brian. Yes, uh, 
there are well all our oils are made here and that most of what we do and uh yeah so it's all made here in the uk so so we do as much as we possibly can amazing and doing the lord's work brendan one last question for you my sister she's a beauty therapist and she's getting into skincare she's going to launch her own brand and i'm telling her she needs like a usp she needs something because i feel like there is a bit of a tidal wave especially in women's uh, makeup and stuff like that she's gonna try and get it unisex but do you have any advice for people that are starting up their own grooming products or their own skincare range something that you can offer them i think really visualize who your customer is if she's creating a brand for a woman, what is that woman wearing? What does she look like? Where does she go out? Where does she, what makes her happy? What is her home like? Um, and I think you're making a product or a formulation or a dress for an individual and you need to immerse yourself in, in who she is. And she or he may be different to how you live your life. It could be completely different, but you should know who that customer is and understand them. Um, and so I gave you that example where I understand my customer is a cosmopolitan urbanite. I kind of know where he and she wants to eat. They mm-hmm. might go to the opera once a month. Like they are a member of Equinox or Soho House. So, and they like to go on holidays and ski. And I, so I can construct that person and I can know how to create a brand to match their lifestyle. But equally so, it could be someone who, you know, we mentioned boots, who shops in boots and wants a very quick solution-based product. Um, so you need to think, ultimately who the customer is and that's what i would say to anybody um because there is just no point in creating something that there's no customer for i think people that will shop with you brendan they make their own bread and they might grow their own mint <laughs> they, they could probably do they probably trim it of the morning and um and i imagine a lot of no that's not true but a lot of their lives are they're quite centered and they know where they're going yeah. um which is not for everyone, but but it's it's we're supporting them to be even better. I like to think. Absolutely, and you can have private consultations or uh, ex- uh, consultations on the website, I should say, uh, which you can find at anatomy.co, and we'll leave all the links over on the show notes at menswearstyle.co.uk. In the meantime, Brendan, I know you got a hard out. Thanks for taking time to speak with me tonight, and all the best with for the future. Indeed, and thank you so much. You've been listening to the Menswear Style podcast. Be sure to head over to menswearstyle.co.uk for more menswear content and email info at menswearstyle.co.uk if you'd like to be a future guest on the show. Finally, please help support the show by leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Until next time.